In connection with our text this morning, there's two additional readings. The first is from Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30. The book of Acts, as many of you know, records how Christ was building up his church through the work of his spirit and his spirit-filled apostles. And we're going to read a short section here from Acts chapter 11 about how Christ prepared his church for a difficult time ahead. Acts chapter 11, verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Saul here will soon have his name changed to Paul, and that is Paul the Apostle. And Paul will be used by our Lord to bring the gospel throughout the Gentile world. And now we're going to turn to one of Paul's letters, the first letter he wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 4. And here we're going to read briefly of his instructions to the Corinthian church regarding this collection. They're instructed to place aside a regular contribution for the churches and the Christians who were in need at this time of the famine. So this is 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you will credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Our text this morning comes from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave, according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this 
not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also the desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, and that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So far the word of the Lord. I do invite you to keep your Bibles open with you to follow through this text as we look at it together this morning. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have come to the final day of the year and we've been blessed to have this day fall on a Sunday, a day where we can meet together as brothers and sisters in Christ and hear from God's Word together. Many of us, I'm sure, have plans to spend the last hours of the year 2023 with friends and family to welcome in a new year. And with a new year comes a renewed sense of hope. We look forward to what this new year will hold. We look with anticipation at the new year. Whatever happened in this past year, whether that was good, whether it was bad, whether that made us happy or sad, is soon to be left behind. And we can look together we can look forward to a new year, continuing to abide in the grace of God together. And it's this change of years with this hope for a new year that leads many of us to consider a new year's resolution, or at least some changes we'd like to see in our lives for the new year. We look back on the past year and there are things that we could be dissatisfied with, things we want to change. But what I want to do this morning is to stop and pause for a moment on this thought and reflect upon the changes we're going to make for the new year. Because so often, we get caught up in the self-centeredness of our, our age. Our New Year's resolutions center around us, about our lives. It's the attitude, it's a new year, new me. You know, perhaps these are the common ones. We would like to get fit, so we commit to exercising. In my experience, that tends to last a couple of months at best. Or perhaps we'd like to make some changes in our house, new, some renovations or some new decor. Perhaps we'd like to try out a new holiday destination this year. Now these things, they're not wrong in and of themselves. But what if we were to commit some of our changes, 
for the next year, to be not about ourselves, but to be directed towards other people? What if this year we made a resolution that doesn't serve ourselves, but it's there to serve others, and in particular, the household of faith, that is, your brothers and sisters around you this morning? What if our commitments for the new year were about bringing God's grace into the lives of others? That's what Paul is motivating the Corinthians to do in this passage, not not setting a New Year's resolution, but to to bring the grace of God into other people's lives. It's what, here in this passage, Paul is reshaping the minds of the Corinthians. When it comes to their desires or lack of desire to give out of what they've been blessed with to the broader Christian community, he wants to reshape how they're thinking about giving. So at this time, Paul has heard from a, a report about Corinth, about a number of issues that's causing contentions in the church there. And one of these issues is the Corinthians have become reluctant to give. All other Christians have been giving to this cause so far that we've heard about, but the Corinthians have stopped. You see, at this time, there was this famine in the land of Judea, and a famine for the people there would mean death. Food would become scarce, What little bit of food could be produced would become so expensive that it was out of reach for the poor. The super rich would be okay. The rich would become poor, but the poor would die. And we read from Acts 11 that the church received warning of this famine from a prophet. And this warning sparked a desire for the Christians to share what they had in abundance with those who would be poor. Corinth, they planned, they pledged to give. They even started the collection, as we read in 1 Corinthians. But at some point, the giving stopped. There was tension between Corinth and Paul, between Corinth and the other churches. And as a result of this tension, the purse strings closed. So when Paul receives a report of this from Titus, He includes in this letter an encouragement for the Corinthians to continue to give. But he doesn't just tell them to give. He explains in this passage, and we're going to see this this morning, how giving works for the Christian and why Christians should be giving. He shows them the love of God and the love of Jesus Christ for them and how Jesus gave himself up And he shows them how they can respond to that through their giving. He declares the grace of God to encourage the Corinthians to give. So this morning I summarize the message of this passage under this theme and points. Paul encourages gracious giving by proclaiming the grace of God. And there's three points here. The first, the example of gracious giving. The second, the motivation for gracious giving. And the third, the purpose of gracious giving. Firstly, the example of gracious giving. In his approach to the tight fistedness of the Corinthians, Paul shows the Corinthians an example of gracious giving, an example that comes from their neighbors in the next door province of Macedonia. See, Corinth was a city of wealth, and multiple trade routes coming in and out of the city. It's a place that was famous for its glitz and its glamour, 
its opulent lifestyle and high society. But Macedonia, to the north, it was a farming region, consisted of a group of people who scratched out their living from the dust of the earth. And so these people, during a famine, would be suffering immensely. But then Paul lays out in verses 2 to 5 an example of what's been happening in these churches of Macedonia. And Paul holds them up to the Corinthians to show the Corinthians how generous giving works. Have a look with me at verses 2 through to 5 and see how Paul keeps raising the bar here on the Corinthians as he reveals what these Macedonians are doing. In verse 2 and 3, Paul, Paul points out two elements of the Macedonian generosity. First, they were giving through hardship. Have a look at verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. It's an interesting mix of words that Paul's used here, isn't it? Did you see all the extra describing words that Paul's used to paint a fuller picture of the Macedonian church? He doesn't just say that they're poor and tested, yet a happy bunch who gave a bit, but he says their affliction was severe, their poverty extreme, yet their joy was abundant, their generosity was an overflowing wealth. He takes the time and the words to stress their condition and their response. Then in verse 3 and 4, Paul expands upon how generous they were by explaining how they gave. He writes, I testify to this, that is, I'm seeing it with my own eyes, their generosity, that not only did they give according to their means, but they gave beyond their means, and not under compulsion, but of their own accord, even to the point where he says in verse 4, they begged earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The Macedonian churches, in comparison to the Corinthians, they were poor. They didn't have much, but they still gave. Paul didn't even ask them to contribute to the cause of donating for the Judean churches. But they begged to be part of this work. And the Macedonians, who did not have much to give, gave an above, above and beyond their means to those who were in greater need. You see, an amount is not given, but it's besides the point. The point is not how much they gave, but the point is how willing they were to give and how much it hurt them to give what they did. They gave beyond their means, willingly living in discomfort so that others may have enough to live and they even begged to do this. It reminds us of the, the story of the widow who puts in two small copper coins in the temple offering box. After the rich had come along and placed in gifts of much higher value. And you remember what Jesus said in response to that widow's offering? It's in Luke 21 verse 3 and 4. I'll read it for you. Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. But even this, giving to the point of hurting, is not what 
Paul is trying to make the Corinthians to do here. He doesn't place the burden of poverty on them, but he does want to show the significance of what has happened in the Macedonians' hearts. Have a look at what's highlighted now in verse 5. Something has astounded Paul and his fellow workers. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. The Macedonians gave themselves to the Lord and then to the work of the apostles. And this astounds Paul and his colleagues. They not only gave what little they have, but Paul describes that they gave their very beings, first to Christ, then to the apostles. You know, giving our life over to the Lord, it's a common expression for someone who's come to the faith. They surrender themselves to the Lord. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. The Macedonians, they were already Christians. This is not a handing over of their life in this way, but it's, it's more of a, a reaffirming of their commitment to Christ. It's a complete surrender to the Lord of everything they own down to their very own beings. And as they handed themselves over to Christ, they recognized the servants of Christ being Paul and his fellow co-workers. They were leaders of the church and they gave themselves into their service as well. So in handing over everything they had down to their very beings, they were displaying a complete trust in the Lord. They trusted that the Lord would provide for them even if they gave away what little they had. And this is at the heart of Christian giving, isn't it? We're not just generous and give to any old cause because we're Christian and it's good to give, but we surrender what we have into the service of Christ and to his people. We trust that we will have enough because we trust God to provide for his children. As one commentator has put it, commitment to Christ and to his lordship is the cornerstone of our giving. We recognize that since Christ is Lord of all, as his followers will humbly give to his cause and his work in the world, his work that benefits his people in need, and his work that advances the gospel into this world. And we will trust that he's going to continue to sustain us and that we will live in faithful service to him. But I don't, I don't want to pretend that this is going to be easy for us because it's not. You know, we can often speak about giving our first fruits to the Lord. And that could be easy when we have enough, when we have an abundance. But what about when things are tough? When the mortgage and the car repairs and the food and the schooling for our children, it, it all eats up all of our paycheck and we've got nothing left. It's tough and it hurts to give. But when we give out of the little that we have, when we give our first fruits out of that little, it's more to God than when we have given a little in comparison to an abundance. So what we need to understand here is that our hearts must be captivated by Christ 
before giving like the Macedonians will make sense. And it's when we see that, we start to understand the depth of what's going on in verses 2 through to 4. The only way they're joyful in their affliction and generous in their poverty was because they had given themselves over to Christ and his cause in the world. They trusted that Christ would care for them, even as they emptied their pockets to look after others. They stepped out in faith, trusting that Christ would provide for them as they shared what they had. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, look at what your neighbors are doing. They're an example to you of gracious giving. Now we might think that's not really fair for Paul to compare the Macedonian Christians to the Corinthians. As parents, it's one of the things, it's a big no-no, you don't compare children. So why is, what's Paul doing here? Some commentators go as far as to say that Paul is trying to shame the Corinthians into giving. But that's not what's going on here. Have a look again back at verse 1. See what Paul says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. The grace of God given among the churches. Not given from, not grace given by, but grace given among. The desire of the Macedonians to give was a work of God. God was the one at work in Macedonia. It was only the grace of God given to the Macedonians that allowed them to respond in this way. It was the grace of God that led them to give not only their possessions, but their very beings over to Christ and his servants. And so Paul says in verse 6 that he and his co-workers are going to send Titus back with this letter in hand to the Corinthians. And Paul's urging Titus to complete the collection, to complete this act of grace amongst the Corinthians as well. But the question still stands, why? Why should they be part of this collection? It's very well that others have done it, but why should the Corinthians also take part in this collection? Why must a Christian give? To which Paul answers with a motivation in verses 7 to 11, and then a purpose in 12 to 15. So we'll move on to our second point, the motivation for gracious giving. See, Paul's just given an example of the grace of God that has been working in the Macedonian neighbors. But then Paul turns to motivate the Corinthians to give by reminding them of what they already know. Last time he was informing them of God's grace that was in action, but now he turns to encourage their gracious giving by reminding them of the grace of God they already know about. And the motivation for gracious giving is given in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now we know Jesus was born into a carpenter's family. His mother and earthly father were not slaves. They were not the poorest of the poor, but they were not by any means rich. They lived a humble existence most likely, relying on the work of Joseph to bring home enough each day from work. Paul's not speaking here of earthly riches. He's speaking about the riches that Christ had as the eternal Son of God. 
the riches that Christ had that Paul also lays out to the Philippians in another one of his letters. It's a well-known passage and a hymn that we'll sing later. And this is where he states that Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's the gospel, isn't it? That the true and eternal Son of God came to live and die on earth as man for mankind. It's what we've just celebrated and commemorated this past Christmas. That the Son of God entered into this world as a man to rescue us from our sin and the result of sin, which is death. But to do this, he had to leave behind the glory and the riches of heaven. And not only that, he had to give up his life. He had to suffer, he had to die in our place under the wrath of God. We can hear this so often that we don't spend enough reflecting and meditating upon what Christ actually gave up. I want you to think about it for a moment. Heaven, it's the place where we all want to be. It's the place where we get to live in glory and eternity with our God. A place where no one will go hungry, where no one will suffer, where no one will feel pain. And we can look forward to these things through the resurrection, which I've heard you're going to hear about this afternoon here. Jesus was there with the Father. He never felt those things. But he gave all that up willingly. How hard do you think that was for Christ to give that up? He left behind the glory and the riches he had in heaven. He was with his Father in heaven with no limitations. But he left that behind to become a true human person. A person who was limited in a way that God is not. A person who would feel hunger and thirst. A person who would feel pain and suffering. A person who took a painful punishment upon himself. A death on a wooden cross that marked him as cursed. He was born into this world as a human so that he could do that for us. He was born to become the poorest of the poor, a man who was beaten, spat upon, rejected, nailed to a cross, lifted up to the laughter and scorn of the world. And it's by that poor man's death where he died in absolute poverty that Paul says, through this we have become rich. And we've been made rich beyond any measure. We've got the full pardon and forgiveness of our sins, so we don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear the God we've sinned against because he's taken us into his family by the death of his son. So can you see that our God is a giving God? 
The Father in heaven, he gave over his son so that we could be brought into his family and made to be his children. His son, Jesus, who is true God and true man, gave over his life so that we may have life and have life in abundance. And this changes our perspective on giving, doesn't it? God loves his people so much that he gave up his son in love so we may have eternal life. So our life doesn't center around here and now. It doesn't center around us. But our life is about faithful service to God, a God who gave everything to take us back. That is why in verse 8, Paul says that giving is not a command. Giving is a test of love. The Corinthians already knew the gospel message. They've reacted in such positive ways already. Have a look at the list that Paul lays out in verse 7. There's these things that they're excelling in. In faith, they trust Christ and his work. They're excelling in speech. The way they speak about the truth and about the gospel is good. Knowledge. They know the right things and have listened well to Paul's teaching. Earnestness and love. Even their desires are in the right place. But they still lack one thing. They have not yet excelled in the grace of giving. And they should give, not because they're commanded to give, but because they need to give out of love. The, the, the Corinthians started in the right place, says Paul in verse 10. They desired to give. And we read about Paul's instructions from the first letter. They were to set aside some money for each week in the collection. But whatever reason, they stopped. And, and now he says, you need to continue to give because it is a benefit to you, a great benefit. It's a test of your love for Christ. Will they be willing to give themselves over to Christ and his work in the world as Christ gave himself up for them, or will they not? You see, as followers of Christ, we've been given so much. We've received an internal inheritance that will never fade. It will never perish. It will never be destroyed. It can never be taken away from us. And it's only when we understand this that we're going to be willing to give over what we have to Jesus and his work. And when we understand this eternal perspective, we may even be willing to give in the face of poverty and affliction like the Macedonians. So the question that Paul is bringing to the Corinthians is will you let Christ captivate your heart? Will you do it? Will you see that all you've received in him? Will you know that you're secure in him? Will you be willing to give everything to him? Not just your wallet, but your very being. Our hearts need to be captivated by Christ and what he has done for us before giving makes sense. And it's only when we see the riches that we have in Christ that we can give ourselves over to Christ. And when we give ourselves over to a giving Lord, we should also expect that a giving Lord will give us over to other people. Our God is a gracious God. He's given us so much. He's given us so much to become his precious possession. And he's got his people all over the world. And he wants us to be a blessing to each other. 
which is what we'll see in the last point, the purpose of gracious giving. There's a purpose to my gracious giving, and Paul outlines it in the last few verses of our text this morning. Paul's encouraging the Corinthians to continue their collection so that what they set out to do will be completed according to their means. And Paul gives some gracious guidelines to the Corinthians. The Macedonians gave of their own desire, and this was beyond Paul's expectations. But Paul says at the end of verse 11 that the Corinthians should give according to their means, and that will be good. Then Paul shows why this will be good in verse 12. If the readiness is there, it is acceptable, that is, it's good before God, to give according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. The expectation is not that we give to become beggars, but giving out of and within the bounds of what we have been blessed with is good and pleasing to our Lord. The test of love in a Christian does not go so far to make us beggars. A life of poverty is not required of the Christian. God blesses us with what we need, and at times he blesses us with even more. And there's a purpose to blessing us with more, and we see this as Paul expands upon this idea in verses 13 to 15. It's a matter of fairness. They're not compelled to give to become burdened so others may be at ease, but it's a matter of fairness amongst the wider family of God. Have a look at how Paul explains this down in verse 14. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so their abundance may supply your need that there is fairness. God loves his children. He provides for them all, and his desire is that none of his children should go without. And that is why Paul brings up the quote from Exodus in verse 15. Back when the children of Israel were being fed in the wilderness, God supplied them with what they needed. Some who gathered more had nothing left over. Others whose need was smaller still lacked nothing. God provided for all his children in the wilderness by the miracle of manna, the bread from heaven. But in the present day, he uses his children to look after one another. He blesses us with an abundance of wealth, an abundance of prosperity, and a host of other blessings so that we can share it with those who do not have enough. So, beloved Church of Christ, how are you doing with giving? with gracious giving. How hard have you found it to be to give yourself first to Christ and then to his cause? I think I've said enough on the matter of finances and I trust that many of you are extremely generous. And enough has been said on the matter that you can contemplate on this yourself at home. I'll leave the spirit to work with this matter in your own hearts. But I'd like to come back to the new year before us, and I want to leave you with some more thoughts on giving. Something to take home and talk about with your family. Meditate upon as you look towards the new year before you. So although this passage 
The focus is on, on giving money, but giving is much wider than money. It's much wider than what we can offer from our wallets. And our riches go far beyond financial wealth. Giving also starts much smaller than churches abroad. It certainly goes beyond our church, but it needs to start in our church. Because a church that has a heart to give to the members within its own congregation will be a church that finds that it has a heart to give to other churches abroad. So when it comes to our New Year's resolutions, our plans for the new year, why don't we start with considering what God has already blessed us with and how we can share this bountiful provision with those around us, starting with a household of faith, starting with the brothers and sisters who are sitting around you this morning. So what has God given you you're able to share with God's people? What have, you given, what have you been given that you can give over to Christ and to his people? You know, giving is more than meals and money. We do that well in our churches. But we, can, we can think beyond this. And it can even be something that seems so small to you. It could just be the ability to sit with a friend, have a cup of coffee, have a cup of tea, chat and pray. Talk with that friend. It could be helping out a young family, offering to take the children for, for a day or for an evening so their parents can have some time to rest and recharge. It could be visiting the elderly and the sick. It's not just the olders and deacons who are responsible for that. It could be a commitment to start up or to lead a Bible study. It's a giving over of your time and your leadership skills for the benefit of the congregation. It could even be organizing youth events, a giving over of your time and love for the children of the Church of Christ. These are just some small examples in the way in which we're called to give our lives over to be a blessing to the church. So the challenge for your new year is to consider what you've been blessed with. And give that over to Christ. Give it over to his people. Because Christ has given so much to make you his. These things that I've raised, they may seem like small things to you. But to the one who receives them, it won't be small. It can be life-changing. You can be bringing the hope and the comfort of the gospel into someone else's life. And that is no small thing to the person who receives it or to our God. So brothers and sisters, can you complete this act of grace among you? Can you give yourself over to Christ? Can you trust in him, knowing that he is pleased to work in and through you for the benefit of his church here and his church abroad? Can you give yourself over to the one who gave himself over for you? Amen.